22, verses 1 to 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they both went to them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifts up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him there was a ram, caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so if any of our children want to join me, we're going to be talking about this story in the side chapel and, um, yeah, just thinking more about what it means for us. So you're very welcome to come. Any children, anyone childlike at heart? Um, we can talk to you. Super. And if you've, uh, if you've got a Bible open, please do keep it open in front of you. We just said, uh, said those words, thanks be to God. I wonder, do you, do you mean that? When you hear a story like that, do you mean that? It's a challenging story, so let's pray before we begin. Father, we do thank you for your word. Your word gives life. Your word is light, and yet we know that this is a really tremendously difficult word. And so we pray, we beg that you would pour out the Holy Spirit upon us. 
Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit opens our eyes to understand what this story means, that your Holy Spirit opens our hearts, that your Holy Spirit stirs this faith within us. Lord, this is a really challenging passage, a frightening passage in lots of ways. So, Lord, would you help us to hear it well? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's, let's, stop, let's not beat about the bush here. You're thinking, what kind of a God would ask someone to do something like this? Am I right? Yes. And possibly also wondering, what kind of a preacher would have this reading with the children still present. Um, and the fact is that the passages like this are kind of easy pickings for Christianity's critics. Because if ever you wanted proof that, uh, that God is dangerous, belief in God is dangerous, then surely a, a story like this is, is, is gold for, for, for those who want to say how, uh, how religion should have no place in the modern world. You know, think about this story and how it reads to, to, to someone who isn't uh, part of the church. Someone thinks that they hear God's voice telling them to go and kill their own son. And in blind faith, he sets off, knife in hand, to perform the divinely decreed deadly deed. Aren't stories like this proof that religion is dangerous? And that we shouldn't take the Bible seriously. You can imagine people asking that. And sadly, it's true that all manner of evil has been done in God's name. But God doesn't own it. God is the original author of the Not In My Name movement. It's called the Third Commandment. Shall not take my name in vain. Nevertheless, the fact remains that this is a challenging, perplexing, and unpalatable story, and no sleight of hand on my part can make it less so. And yet, it's also really important for me to say that neither the, the Jewish community or the Christian community through the centuries have, has ever read this story as an endorsement for child abuse, or child sacrifice, or murder, or terrorism, or anything like that. But rather, this story's always been read in conjunction with the rest of the story of the scriptures, as an illustration of a faith that's willing to yield even what's most valuable to us. And it's also really important to point out that Genesis 22 is is primarily for the, intended for the, the family of faith, not for outsiders to the family of faith. This, hard, this story is hard enough for us on the inside, let alone those looking in from the outside. We struggle to know with, what to do with this story, and I'm sure that I, I probably uh, can imagine that there are quite a few of us who probably would rather this story wasn't in the Bible. Am I right? Come on, be honest. And if you and I were responsible for editing the draft manuscript of the Bible, which, thank God, we, we're not, but you know, if God sent us a proof copy, we were the editors, you, know, you can just imagine us taking, ta ta taking the Bibles and we'll go get out the red marker, 
big cross through Genesis 22. And we'll give our feedback to the Lord and we'll say, look, Lord, we've, we've, sent you the manu- we've, we've read the manuscript that you sent us. Uh, frankly, we've got a few concerns about it. Uh, so this story, for instance, where you ask Abraham to sacrifice his son, I mean, what's with that? Uh, I mean, folks, folks aren't going to like that story. Um, and honestly, you don't come out looking too good in it. People don't want to believe in a God like that. So our advice would be, just let, let's just cut out chapter 22, okay? That's probably how we'd approach it if we had that job. But as the Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis says, God would probably tell us that we're missing the point. Because Genesis 22 isn't in our Bibles to make non-believers believe. It's in our Bibles to help those who do believe in their relationship with the living God, even when God seems to turn their world upside down. And the story of the near sacrifice of Isaac is scary, but it's not scary for the reason we first think it's scary, because it seems to um, portray God as a cruel, violent, bloodthirsty monster. Now, that's not the reason it's scary. This story is scary because it shows us in no uncertain terms what faith in the living God looks like. And it's not pretty. Or at least it's not pretty as our ter- uh, culture uh, thinks of prettiness uh, in these kind of terms. You know, our, 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 the, the, the modern kind of obsession with individual rights and liberties doesn't look pretty in those contexts. Because this story says that faith looks like unlimited obedience. Saying yes to God. Not yes, but just yes Faith looks like total and unconditional surrender. The willingness to treasure God above every other treasure, renouncing every other ground for confidence except for God. And faith looks like putting God first in all things, preferring him over every competitor for our affections. Abraham shows us that faith in our God is costly and requires courage. And that's the reason this story is so scary. Now, you can consider all that a disclaimer for what I'm about to say. So if you want to walk out now, I don't blame you. But please don't. (laughs) Um, I would just say, if there's a bite to, to this passage... Remember that Jesus also turned many away when he spelled out the cost of discipleship. But please don't go, because if you do, you'll miss the fact that Abraham is never asked to give more than he's received. No matter what God asks of us, if we have him, no amount that we give is going to see us end up in the red. The God in whom Abraham is asked to go all in is the God who has first gone all in on Abraham. And so the question I just encourage us to have in our minds this, small, uh, this afternoon as we're looking at this story is this. Could God ever ask too much of us? Well, 
Context is everything in this story, so let me just quickly uh, set the scene for us. The opening 11 chapters of Genesis show us that the world God made was perfect in every way, but humanity has come, uh, become trapped in this perpetually downward spiral of death and disobedience and self-destruction. And as we looked at last week with the story of Noah and the flood, uh, that flood could have marked the point at which God just said, you know what, enough is enough. But he loved his creation so much that he was resolved to be God with us no matter what, even though the sinful inclination of our hearts hadn't changed. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, there's a decisive new chapter that breaks out in God's salvation story. From now on, God will move forward in relationship with the world through one man and his family. One man and his family chosen from among the many. And through this one man and his family, God will bless the whole world. A world that has strayed from him. And that man, of course, was Abraham. Now, before chapter 12, we know virtually nothing about Abraham, uh, except that he lived in a a pagan country in Mesopotamia. He was married to a woman called Sarah, who was old, who couldn't have children. They didn't have children. And what we do know is that he's called to give up his past, his security, his identity, and to venture out into a place that he doesn't yet know with only God's word to guide him. Then over the course of the next 25 years, from the age of 75 to 100, God will keep promising and renewing his promise of a son. And Abraham will keep believing that God will fulfill that promise. And though his trust wavers, uh, no more so than when he and Sarah try and circumvent God uh, by fathering a son through Sarah's maidservant Hagar, Yet even then, afterwards, Abraham continued to believe that God would deliver on his word, despite all the evidence to the contrary. And so, in the words of the Apostle Paul, he says, Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said, So numerous shall your descendants be. And this is really important, because guess what happens in chapter 21, just before this story? Isaac is born, the promised child, awaited for for 25 years, is here. Hooray! After 25 years, God's delivered on his promise. Against all odds, he's given him a son. How much more agonizing then, these words. Take your son... Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. And just as in Genesis 12, where God highlights what a big ask he was making uh, with his threefold description of what Abraham was called to give up, uh, his country, his kindred, his father's house, so here also God ratchets up the stakes with this threefold description of the sacrifice he wants Isaac to make, your son, your only son, whom you love. 
You see, Abraham, uh, Isaac, sorry, wasn't just Abraham's son. That would have been painful enough. But Isaac was the son of God's impossible promise. The son he'd waited for for 25 years. The son through whom God said he would bless the world. The stakes couldn't have been any higher. And in verse 1 of the reading that Angie read to us, the narrator lets us in on a secret, something that Abraham isn't aware of. This is a test. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. But this isn't like one of those fire drills that they talk about in the staff room for weeks and weeks before it happens. You all know it's coming. Uh, and then when the fire drill goes off, oh, we know this. Yeah, it's once a term. We always you know, go out, practice what we do. Abraham doesn't know it's a test. He treats God's word with absolute seriousness. And he does exactly what God asks him to do. And that's what faith is. Obedience. Abraham gets up early the next morning, saddles his donkey, takes Isaac and two of his servants with him, prepares some firewood and heads off for the place that God will show him. He doesn't argue. He doesn't prevaricate. He simply obeys. And you know what, it's really, you know, it's one thing for us to be able to say to God, God, I love you. It's quite a different thing to be able to say to God, God, I obey you. So I wonder when the last time was that any of us said to ourselves, I really want to do this. But Jesus commands me not to, and so I won't. Or perhaps the other way around, I really don't want to do this, but Jesus commands me to, and so I will. If our faith never challenges us, never costs us anything, I think there's good reason to ask whether it's faith in the living God. But surely, though, it would be reasonable for us to ask also whether wouldn't, wouldn't the, the faithful response of Abraham be to try and talk God out of it? Like, like he did a few chapters earlier when he interceded for the, people, the righteous inhabitants of Sodom when God had pronounced his judgment on the city. Couldn't he? Shouldn't he have done the same thing then? God, you, you can't be serious. You, you, wouldn't, you don't really want me to sacrifice Isaac, do you? I mean, after all, isn't there one of the worst defenses for committing a, an awful crime that you were just following orders? Obedience isn't always a virtue, is it? Obedience to a command doesn't mean that we abdicate responsibility for our own actions. In fact, sometimes obedience can be a pretty cowardly reason to do something or not to do something. But the obedience of faith is really a matter more of personal trust. Abraham didn't obey 
because God told him to do it. He obeyed because God told him to do it. Do you see the difference? The first one's a kind of cold, mechanical, impersonal kind of obedience, but the latter is an obedience that's born out of the white-hot heat of a living, active, personal relationship with someone. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think that makes what Abraham's asked to do any easier. But I guess what it does mean is that this story isn't cut off from the rest of the preceding narrative. This isn't God's, uh, Abraham's first date with God. They've got history. This is, after all, the same God who had called him out of Mesopotamia, who had blessed him and prospered him, who had given him the impossible son that he never expected he could have, the son through whom God's blessings would flow to the world. And God isn't stupid either. He knows what's at stake. But Abraham's trust in God is sufficient for him to reach out his hands and take the knife, ready to sacrifice his son, if that's what God wanted. Now, again, we know that God intervenes in the nick of time. But remember, Abraham doesn't know that. Abraham's actions reveal that the real love of his life, the first priority of his heart, is God. Abraham might not have known what was going on or or why he'd been asked to do what he'd been asked to do, but again, to quote the Apostle Paul, he knew that the God who has asked him to do this is the same God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, and that he's able to do what he'd promised. This is really important. Abraham's faith looks like unconditional surrender. There are no ifs, no buts. He lays everything on the altar before God. It's so easy to sing, all to Jesus I surrender, all to thee I freely give. But what about when Jesus calls in that check? Can he sing it as well then? That's what he was doing with Abraham. God asked Abraham to surrender what was most precious to him and let him be his greatest treasure. And that is the heart of worship. Not an hour and a half a week, some money in the collection. God first. God at the center, 168 hours a week. God pursued with everything we have. And Abraham shows that faith means putting God first in our lives. Sometimes God asks us to surrender the treasures of our hearts so that through the furnace of testing, he becomes our greatest treasure. Uh, So Tim Keller, the the writer and American uh, pastor, says this. He says, as long as Abraham never had to choose between his son and obedience to God, he could not see that his love was becoming idolatrous. In a similar way, we may not realize how idolatrous our career has become to us until we're faced with a situation in which telling the truth or acting with integrity 
would mean a serious blow to our professional development or advancements. If we're not willing to hurt our career in order to do God's will, our job will become a counterfeit God. And the same could be said of anything that's more important to us than the will of God, whether it's a relationship or a reputation. Abraham's faith was in a God who provides, a God who provides against all hope and expectation. And what we often forget about this story, I think, is that God had put his eggs in Abraham's basket. And so God wanted to know, is this basket able to bear the weight? And from the preceding chapters of Genesis before this, there's plenty of reason to doubt. Was Abraham just into God for what he could get out of God? Now that he had his son, would he show the same willingness to take God at his word? Was Isaac more valuable to Abraham as his own beloved son than as the son of God's gift, God's promise of the great salvation story? Was, was Abraham willing to prize God above that longed-for child that God gave him? And the answer is, Yes. As we read in verse 12, Now I know that you fear God, God said, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And there's a danger too that as Christians, we, we can also be into God for what we can get out of God. I'm not necessarily just talking about the prosperity gospel, you know the thing, come to God and he'll make you healthy, wealthy and successful. But there can also be a, a more subtle, spiritual kind of prosperity gospel. Come to God and he'll give you peace, power, and purpose. And the problem with that is that while it's true, he does give peace, power, and purpose. Who's it about? Me. It's all about me. We treat him as a cosmic cash machine. We're into God for what we can get out of God. And in the 16th century, a mystic called St. John of the Cross wrote of this experience in what's famously called the dark night of the soul. And to, to oversimplify it, he said that if there's a chance that we're only into God for what we can get out of God, his, uh, you know, the feel-good factor of worship perhaps, then for a season, God might need to take that away. He might need to take away that sense of his peace, his presence, his power, so that we can relearn what it means to love God for God's sake and not just for God's goodies. And then, and only then, is it safe for him to give back what he's taken away. So Genesis 22 is Abraham's dark night of the soul. God demanded that Abraham lay down what was most important to him most dear to him, in order to see whether he truly did love God for God's own sake. And Abraham passed the test. He didn't withhold his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loved. Had Abraham sought to cling on desperately to Isaac, he would have turned him from a God-given gift into a possession to be jealously guarded and controlled. 
But Abraham knew that to have nothing but the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, to have him is to have everything. And the person who has God and everything has no more than the person who has God alone. God had always provided for Abraham in the past. Abraham had no reason to stop trusting him now. So was it unreasonable for God to ask Abraham for the life of Isaac? Well, just consider this. God never asks us to give anything that he hasn't first given to us. And he never asks us to do anything that he's not willing to do himself. You see, there's another story in the Bible of a father giving up his son, his only son, whom he loved. I suspect you probably know it. Only in that story, the son isn't saved at the last minute. In fact, quite the opposite happens. The sky turns black. Heaven is stony silent. And the son cries out in agony, why have you abandoned me? About 500 years ago, the great reformer Martin Luther read this story in Genesis 22 to his wife. And hearing it, his wife asked him, how could a loving God ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son? And Martin Luther gently replied, why Katie? He did it himself. He did it himself. And so with fear and trembling, we can give everything to God because we know that God gives everything to us. When we look at the cross of Jesus, we can see how abundantly God has provided for us. Therefore, when God tells you to sacrifice your Isaac, and if it hasn't happened yet, it will, ask yourself this. What can I withhold from the God who has withheld nothing from me? Not even his own son, his only son, Jesus, whom he loved. What am I afraid to give to a God who raises the dead and calls into being the things that do not exist? And this challenging story, and it is still a challenging story, Abraham demonstrates that faith is a matter of obedience, a matter of surrender, and a matter of preferring God above anything else in the world. Jesus said the same thing. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Abraham proved that he was into God for better, for worse. For richer, for poorer, 
in sickness and in health. The question is, are we? Thank you, Steve. Lots to take on board there. An amazing giant of faith. 